Hi, everybody. Together with Apple Books, welcome again to the Oprah's Book Club podcast and our series on Isabel Wilkerson's magnificent book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. Isabel and I are joined by readers, some really great readers, who've all read the book. So to all you readers out there, I love to read your social posts about Cass. Keep posting on our Oprah's Book Club social pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hello, readers, again. Today, we're talking about pillar number three, which is titled Endogamy and the Control of Marriage and Mating. It's about the necessity of the upper caste to control the love, the marriage, and children of the subordinate caste. So let's start uh, with pillar three with the definition of it. What does it mean and what has it looked like in caste systems? Endogamy uh, essentially means that marriage is only allowed within the confines of a given group. Uh, in a caste system, it would be within one's caste. In the United States, there's a term that we use, which is miscegenation or anti-miscegenation. Miscegenation being the idea of people mm. actually mixing. And so there, that mm -hmm. at a certain point, 41 of the 50 states at some point or other in our history have had a ban on interracial marriage, marriage across uh, the, the, these artificial lines that were created back in the founding of the country. And this is, this is an effort then to keep the relations and family systems within the confines of a given caste. And that in doing so, it means that people are not allowed to marry across these lines, but they're also not even to have romances across those lines or even the appearance of romance. These things in not that long ago and not ancient history in American life, going back to the 1960s, could, could cost someone their life uh, if they crossed this essential pillar of caste. Yeah, and not only just, we all know the story of Emmett Till, not even for marriage, but just to even look at a white woman or to appear to, which, you know, years later she said it did not happen the way she claimed, uh, but just to appear to have any interest at all or to brush up against the shoulder of or to bump up against, I mean, people have been lynched for less. Absolutely. It shows you how closely guarded and how firmly enforced this pillar of caste was. This was the thing that cost many, many thousands of people, if not tens of thousands of people, their lives. And it also uh, mm -hmm. created these barriers that created these parallel family lineages that meant that people who were from one group would have had very little to do with, could not even give the appearance of interest in someone in another group. And that meant that they had very little in the way of a stake in the lives of people who were not like them or presumed not. That's what you mean when you, when you say that marriage restrictions block empathy for others. Yeah. Explain that. Because by definition, if you could not cross this, these, these dividing lines in order to marry or even show interest in, in, in romance of any kind, even friendship, if those things were outlawed, then that meant that you were restricted to the people who were like you. And that meant that your family system was only built around people like you, which meant that you had no mm -hmm. stake whatsoever in the well-being, fulfillment, happiness, health of anyone who was not like you because you would have nothing to do with them in any way, shape, or form. And the most intimate and most central way of expressing that would be having someone in your family, intermarrying, going out with, 
having romance with, having children with, those kinds of things were, were outlawed. Yeah. Of course, the interesting thing, of course, is that in enslavement, the enslavers could impregnate the enslaved women, but it's central to know that they could not have the formal or even the appearance of, of actual relationship. Relationships were the difference. Sex was one thing, relationship was another. Yes, and if a person who had been impregnated or an owner who had impregnated someone, if they tried to have a relationship with that person, they would have been ostracized by their own caste. Interesting, that's where the ostracism would come, not from the rape or uh, sexual harassment or yeah. whatever you might want to call it. It would be from the illusion of the appearance of equality in a relationship that was considered more threatening to, yeah. the, to the strength of the caste system. Yeah, it's okay to impregnate that person and to then use those children as your own means of financial gain. But if you were to imply that there were a, actual a relationship between, it also humanizes the other yes, person. exactly. The subordinate cast, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really... You know, in Pillar 3, you tell a chilling story. I'll never forget that story. It really makes my eyes water to think about it. The 15-year-old boy named Willie James Howard, who, you know, being a 15-year-old in 1943, writes a valentine to a white girl in his class. Tell us about that story. Yeah, well, he was the beloved only only child of this couple that they, they had such high hopes for him. Uh, and he actually, in those days, it was considered quite the honor to have gotten a job in, in one of the general stores in town as an African-American where many people would have been out in the field. Here he was getting a, a job in, in a store. And he was so excited about it and he wanted to impress everybody at his new job that he got Christmas cards for everyone to show the, his good cheer and, and his goodwill toward them. He sent one uh, in particular to one girl named Cynthia who he had a crush on. And in it, he indicated you know, that he had a crush. He signed it with, with L for, for love. And he said, if, I, if, if, you were, if I were to have a sweetheart, you would be the one I would want. And uh, he sent that to her with all the you know, innocence and, and excitement that anyone having a crush at that age would have. But the girl uh, was white, he was black, and she showed it to her father. Her father then gathered some men uh, to go, a posse to go and, and get this young man uh, and his father. And they took him to the edge of a river and they forced him to jump in front of the stricken father who was himself held a gunpoint to watch his only child die in that way. Again, that was 1943. That was not ancient history. There are people uh, among us who were alive at that time. It's not ancient history. Uh, it was 1943 going into 44, actually, because it was the end of 43. Melba just raised her hand. Melba, were you, were you alive at that time? You were alive at that time? Very much so. I was born on Pearl Harbor Day. And uh, I remember all the oh. story. Not about people who were killed exactly for that reason. Every day you hear about somebody who either looked at someone, winked at them, may, appear, may have appeared to look their way. Um, people would even say things like, don't have a thought. They'd meet black men in the road. They'd say, I think you are thinking about my wife. I think you're thinking about that white girl over there. Down they go. That was happening all the time when I was that age. Wow. Well, you may all remember in 1967, Richard Loving, a white man and his wife, Mildred, a black woman, took their case to the Supreme Court 
and one in the famous Loving versus Virginia decision. Two of our readers, Margaret and Alan, married in 1966. That's a year before that Loving decision. I want to say hello to y'all. Hi, Margaret and Alan. Hi. Hi. So you were able to marry legally because you were marrying in California. We were in California, and it was not illegal then. But in 1966, where there were still, as Isabel was just saying, so many states had miscegenation laws on the books, endogamy laws that didn't allow people to marry, 41 states. Alabama just, in, I think it's 2000, it became legal that you could be with somebody from another race, black and white could marry. How did you all do that? And what was the reaction from your families at the time? Margaret, were you disowned by your family? I was disowned by my family when I told them that I had met a man who was um, a wonderful Christian. He was a pastor. He was this, he was that. Then I said he was a Negro. And that's when really all hell broke loose in my family. And my father gave me no chance to talk more about him. He had already determined he was not worth my time not worth giving up my life for, because that's what he thought would happen. And he thought that the bloodline of our family would then be tainted. This was in 1966. <laughs> oh. But we were determined, and we, we fell in love with each other and decided that we would marry, and we did. And we have been for 54 years, and here we Incredible. are. Incredible yeah. for anybody. Yay. But, uh, Alan, may I ask you, were you not afraid? Were you not... You, you obviously, in 1966, were, a, were of the age to be aware of what could happen to a black man marrying a white woman and what that, what that could cost you. It could cost you your life. Most definitely. In fact, we have given our life uh, these 54 years to that very cause. And I just want to say, first of all, before I make any comment, answer your question, is I want to thank Isabel personally for her hard work and labor to bring, bring to us this great gift. Mm -hmm. It's just tremendously impacted me. And you can I just say this to her uh, this way? Your mom and dad be proud of you, girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and secondly, thank you, Oprah, for all these years uh, to bring this to the forefront and to turn light on. This has really enlightened these, these years that I've lived. I understand better. When my father uh, disowned uh, me, the, the area, the thing that concerned me the most was that I was, I was not respected for my character, but rather my color. Mm -hmm. That really incensed me uh, and, and hurt me because up to that point, I do, do everything I could to be. When I, if I, if I had a line to talk with a girl, it never was what could she bring, or what can I bring to it too. So when somebody dare says that they wouldn't accept me because of the color of my skin, when I was doing all, I knew how to bring something to the relationship as well. It really hurt me, and the result of that uh, gave me a real point of bitterness and anger. And uh, when I went to him and asked him to I have his daughter's hand in wedlock, you know, and, and he said these things, and then he, the way he treated her, 
I, I said to her, if, if we wouldn't work, I loved her so much then that I said, if you could find a good white <laughs> that have a Mercedes that could take care of you right, then I, I want you to ha have that. And a year later, we decided, no, it, it, I was the one. And from that point on, mm. we have walked together around this whole understanding, first of all, that love is greater than hatred. Yeah. And that has, been, mm. that has been absolutely the most freeing thing in my life, to, to recognize that love is more powerful than hate. And what we see, I'm sitting Didn't you out. end up in the end, but sorry to interrupt, but didn't you in the end end up burying him? Didn't you end up overseeing his burial ceremony? Yes. Uh, he asked me to do his wife's funeral, uh, his, his mother, who was probably the, the most strongest racist one, his brother. I did five weddings, and when he passed, he told his children that he wanted me to do the ceremony. So wow. I'm sitting there in the living room of my sister-in-law, who was, uh, uh, he told her to treat his daughter as though she were dead. Well, I'm sitting in her living room now, talking to you with the relationship restored. 14 children, grandchildren later, and to see the, the fruit of forgiveness. And so the big thing that I have really committed my life to is this whole area of reconciliation and forgiveness. Wow. A lot of us are tearing up just hearing that story. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Uh, and to be able to do it at a time when it was so dangerous to do it. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, Mr. Allen, go ahead. And you know what, Oprah, when my daughter got married, Elizabeth, got married, she asked me to, of course, do the, the service. And the father of the bride usually walks to see the mother down the aisle, etc. Well, guess what? I couldn't walk Margaret down the aisle, but guess Oprah who walked her down the aisle? Yes, her father walked her down the aisle. The, the very one who had threatened to kill me if I married him. So... That's our story. Wow. That's a full circle story. That's a full circle story. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Thank you so much. Casey Mark is a teacher in Chicago and was a part of our conversation also with Professor Kendi on the Oprah conversation. Casey, you have a question for Isabel about endogamy. I do. Um, again, thank you so much for, I mean, you talk about a work that wrote to people's heart. You, you pierced mine as well. Um, it was incredible. Uh, I, last few months I've been thinking nonstop, which is standard of my character. Um, and since our last conversation with Professor Kendi, I think I've, I'm confident in that I've purposefully and intentionally gained stamina and perseverance with um, just settling into this comfort and detaching from my feelings of good and bad and just being white, right? And I think I am diving into the action component but what I keep circling back to is, is my action enough? Um, what's next? What more can I do? I think I'm guilty of this. And I think white people in general um, want a quick fix. We want to look at this as a moment rather than a movement. So my question in specific to this pillar is um, looking at that beautiful love story just between <laughs> who just spoke, like, 
I have a five-year-old, a two-and-a-half-year-old, and a one-year-old, is my constantly talking to them about partnerships, relationships, or love, or whatever they get into, that it shouldn't be based on what they see. It should be based on love, shared dreams, safety, and respect. Is that enough? Is that is that little action over the course of the long game enough? I completely agree with you that there's not going to be a single thing, one thing that, that any of us can do to overturn 400 years of programming. But what I can say is that to do nothing would mean to acquiesce to, to this in a way that would suggest that there's nothing that can be done. I do think that it has to do with, again, education, knowing the history, because in the same way that when, when we go to the doctor, the, the doctor wants to know our history, we need to know our own history. We need to be passing it down to the next generation. I think, though, for people who were born to the dominant caste, um, one of the things that can be done is to recognize the inherited standing and benefit of the doubt that accrues to, through no fault or action of one's own, and to try to see how one can use that for the greater good, how one can uh, truly be an ally by opening, again, opening one's heart to people who might be otherwise seen as different from oneself, to be that voice where the people in the subordinate caste are often not believed when they report something that's happened to them. Uh, they are gaslit by people saying that, no, 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 it's not that, it's this. Uh, they are derailed and de detracted from what they're trying to say, and which, which actually has the effect of making people not even want to speak about the things that they've experienced. The video cameras, the, the cell phone footage has now been make it, making it possible for people to have additional evidence of what they've experienced. But even then, people can say, well, we didn't see what happened in the beginning of the video, or there, people can still try to disregard it. And so what people mm -hmm. of, of willing spirit and open hearts can do is to be in testimony when they see injustice, to stand up for those whose voices may not be heard or may be dismissed out of hand just because of where people are situated in the caste system, in the hierarchy. That's one thing that every individual can do. I think that there's something that everyone can do every day. I do believe in the flap of the butterfly wings off the coast of West Africa that can change a, the trajectory of a wind that can lead to a hurricane later. I do think that all of these things add up. There's not one thing that needs to be done. It's so many things. But if we give up and say that there's nothing we can do, then nothing will change. Well, I think it comes down to what you speak of in the epilogue of the book. It's radical empathy. And also to what John Lewis, the late John Lewis, was saying, getting yourself into good trouble. Whenever you see that there is an injustice, whenever you see that there are things that are happening that are unfair, that you not be the silent one, you know, that you, that you not let that go unspoken. I wanted to add that there is great power untapped maybe power that individuals who are in the dominant caste can have with other people that they know. When you, when a person hears disparaging things said or uh, skepticism about the, the reports that, an, that someone from the subordinated caste is, is saying, um, to be that person in the room to say, well, wait a minute, 
I was reading here that this is what happens, or I was listening to that and this is what happened, and to be that voice because there needs to be, there needs to be testimony from people who are not from the subordinated caste who can say with the authority that's often accorded people in the dominant caste without their wishing to, there needs to be people standing up on behalf of those who, whose voices may not be heard otherwise. And those are the things that can have an impact on people that you know, even if they're not responding in the moment, hearing it, hearing it time and time again. Um, it, it, even people, people may not say, yes, I hear you and, and, and I will now think differently, but they are hearing you. They're hearing you and they can yeah. ultimately respond. Yeah. So every time you stand up, you make a difference. Uh, Erica, you wanted to say, yes. I was going to say that I relate to Casey is saying um, as far as my kids and trying to teach them to be more compassionate and to stand up for and trying to train them to be allies. Um, I took my kids to a protest just this last weekend in our small town and I have bought all of the books on anti-racism for children and my question I guess kind of goes along with what she's saying can I stop this chain, stop this cycle? Is there, do you believe that as, teaching as parents, as mothers and fathers, can our children, our upper caste children, can they grow up not feeling those same thoughts? It's an uphill battle because we, all of us are, are um, having to push against or figure out how to absorb messaging that we receive from the very earliest moment that we are conscious of it. And you know, from billboards to uh, commercials to who dies first in a movie, I mean, all of these things get, they get uh, burrowed into our subconscious. We're all exposed to this, even for parents who are trying to teach their children a different way of looking at uh, our society, we'll still find that there are things that, that they're absorbing because it's out there for all of us to absorb. And so I think that it's one thing that I would really want us to emphasize is that learning these steps toward opening oneself up is a really important point. The idea of learning and reading about the steps that we can take uh, to be anti-racist or anti-caste is, is, is vital. But I would say just as important as that is learning our country's history. Because we, we, without knowing our country's history, we don't have the scaffolding, the, the foundation with which to understand how we got to where we are. And it's a difficult history to absorb sometimes. It's very, very difficult. And we, we have not all been, had the benefit of being able to know. The majority of us have not been, had the chance to really know the true history. I mean, with The Warmth of the Suns, the first book that I wrote, I heard time and time again, over and over and over again, I heard from people, they would say, I had no idea that these things happened in my country. I had no idea that these things happened within the lifespan of people that I know, either, either their lifespan or their grandparents or parents' lifespan. So there's a tremendous amount that we don't know about our own country. And so I, I would say that in, in, as, as hard as we are working on uh, our own behaviors, it's critical to have the foundation of information and history to really understand and know what's happened in our country. Because that gives us more of the framework and the, the sustenance to actually know what we're advocating for and what to teach our children. Okay, Lisa? Hi, um, Isabel, I just want to thank you so much for this book and Oprah for being the constant voice on the difficult subjects. But I, I wanted to, you know, just jump in on this topic that we're speaking about right now. I have three teenagers. 
um, and they have gone through the history classes in the United States. And I, I asked all of them, you know, tell me about what you were taught in school about uh, slavery and the Civil War and Black oppression. And, you know, the resonating message I got from them was they teach you, yes, there was slavery, but then the Civil Rights Acts were passed and everything was done. Everything was great after that, right? And they don't connect the past to the present in these history classes in schools. And your book right. did that. And I wish and I hope we can lobby to have this book be the history book <laughs> in eighth grade for these 14-year-olds replaced with what's yep. taught in our schools today. And I'm so grateful. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. Heather, you want to say what? Yeah, I wanted to actually speak to Erica's point when she talked about our kids and teaching our kids. And maybe I'm totally naive and optimistic, but I think our kids are already doing better. I see them out there protesting. I see them out there talking. I see them starting groups at school for diversity. I see them watching their role models, watching the NBA restart during COVID and making a point about Black Lives Matter. So, um, Again, maybe it's my optimistic nature as a pediatrician, but I, I think that our youth are, are getting it right. And I'm hoping that the education continues and they keep moving this forward. Do you see the same thing, Isabel? You know, the, the studies that I have seen that talk about one's exposure or attitudes on race show that uh, I'm looking at the Gen Z, I haven't seen all the numbers for Gen Z, but for millennials, which actually gets people in the mid-20s, early to mid-20s, uh, show that there's still that continuing through line of exposure to, these to this messaging, and that um, age alone does not protect against the programming that we all have re received. It does get better with each generation, it has been, but the, the, older gen the oldest generation would be people who were raised in Jim Crow and may still carry that. But it's still concerning that the messaging is still being absorbed. And I, I hope and pray that the things that people are exposed to now will allow us to be on the cusp of an awakening, that people, uh, Gen Z in particular, would be able to be in a position to see for themselves the injustices and be able to connect to it. You know, over time, people can become a, a little more hardened as they, some people, not all, but young people tend to be the ones who are most hopeful and more, more uh, willing to stand up uh, against injustice. So hopefully, I, I do hope that you are correct in saying that. I would caution and say that once you're exposed to the programming, the programming has been there for a long time. There was a lot of excitement, of course, during the 1960s, for example, a generation that was on the cusp of protesting the war, protesting civil rights. And some of the people who are now past that era in their lives, of course, and now are um, either approaching retirement or they're well-established, may not have the same, that same enthusiasm. What I'm saying is that it has to be a continuing effort to keep people aware, keep people focused. It can be tempting to say that we have made more progress than we might have because I, we see these things that are going on. People are still living with the effects of this today. And I'm, I'm hoping and praying that we are on the cusp of an awakening. I am. But by, tw by 2013, 87% of Americans favored marriage between black and white. And in, I think, 1958, 
just before you all were married in 66, 94% of the country was against. And now it is not so unusual to see black and white people together. So this represents one of the largest shifts in public opinion in Gallup poll history, I read. And that's a big step, wouldn't you say, in the right direction in terms of endogamy? I would Has it say, had impacts though, on the caste system? Yeah, I would say I would I would say that, but I would also say that you know the fact is that it was not until 2000 that the state of Alabama finally rescinded its anti-miscegenation law, and even with that referendum, 40 percent of Alabamians voted to keep the miscegenation law. 40 percent. That's In a lot. In 2000. Of In 2000. Yeah, but. But you all, Margaret and Alan, you all have seen progress yourself. I can't imagine in 1966 the kind of glares and stares and, you know, blatant uh, biasness you were shown. Have you seen a difference over the years for yourselves? Yes, we have. We have seen it. We find it mostly in the younger generation, of course. And when we go to talk about why forgive and, and our story, they, the kids kind of say, well, what's the big deal, you know? Well, they older generation is still saying um, they want to know more about what happened and the, the negativity that, that came out of it all. Mm -hmm. We have seen change. We've seen, we've seen people turning their lives around and for a while you feel like you're swimming upstream. Sometimes you feel like you're treading water, but you have to make a stand and not go with the flow of the river along with everybody else. And I think that's been the strength right. of us. Go ahead, Alan. I'll let you finish. Yeah. Also, that that it's not up to us to do it all. For example, you talked about uh, whites feeling guilty. Well, that's uh, that's kind of driving with your brakes on when you recognize. I love your analogy, your powerful use of the analogy of the house. We live in it. It, it, the house was, you know, it, it's, it's old. And so then what we must do then is make the repairs. We didn't have air conditioning, put air conditioning in it. So I think that it's an opportunity. Thank you, Margaret and Alan and Casey, for sharing your stories. Thank you, Isabel. Next time, we'll be discussing Pillar 4, which is titled Purity Versus Pollution. This is one of the pillars that just shakes you to your core. So hold on to your thoughts and questions, y'all. But we know that knowledge is power. And uh, we're trying to gain as much as we can here. Head to Apple Books to get your copy of Cast. You can also go to Apple TV Plus to watch my author interviews with previous Oprah's Book Club picks. And in October, my one-on-one -on -one interview with Isabel Workerson. Bye, everybody. Till next time.